0: Welcome to Provisional Aspirations, a podcast exploring the psychology of religion, philosophy, and clinical mental health. I'm Jeffrey Wallace, author, religious trauma survivor, and graduate student pursuing a master's degree in counseling psychology. Join me as I indulge my academic interest in the human spiritual experience, a curiosity that I couldn't fully explore as a member of a high demand religious group. But now I'm learning out loud and it feels great. Even in 2022, if you were to ask the average Westerner what name comes to mind when you say the word psychology, they would answer Sigmund Freud, or perhaps just Freud. Indeed, Freud's impact on the field of psychology, and even further to Western thought in general, cannot be understated. Freud was a neurologist who lived from 1859 to 1939, and developed a clinical practice for treating psychological challenges that he called psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, as the name suggests, is an analysis of an individual's psychic processes. It was really the first form of talk therapy, and it was based on Freud's belief that psychological distress could be alleviated by bringing unconscious psychological material into consciousness so that it could be integrated into a more mature psychological state. Freud's original framework for psychoanalysis involved months, even years, of discussion with the client. During the sessions, the client would lay down on the quintessential therapist's couch with their back to Freud and talk about whatever came to their mind, a process that Freud called free association. When it comes to the psychology of religion, Freud is a significant historical character. It has been said that Freud's theories are the first of their kind, a divergence from religious explanations of the human mind. He was really the first to provide a robust framework for human thought that did not include theological concepts like the immortal soul, spirit, angels, demons, and mind reading by an all-knowing, all-powerful father-figure god. Freud wrote three books about the psychology of religion, Totem and Taboo in 1913, The Future of an Illusion in 1927, and Moses and Monotheism in 1937. I recently learned about these three books from a series of lectures about comparative religion by Charles Kimball that I'm listening to on audiobook, and I immediately primed myself a copy of Totem and Taboo to get started. In recent years, Freud's theories, and psychoanalysis in general as a clinical practice, have fallen out of fashion. Some therapists still practice psychoanalysis today, but the evidence base for this practice is not as deep as with more modern therapeutic modalities. That's not to say that psychoanalysis doesn't work, just that the research backing it is not as robust. One issue with Freud's work is that he assertively states that his theory of the human mind is scientific. He talks about the evolution of human thinking uh, as it progresses from animism to monotheistic religion and finally to a more scientific approach. But Freud's basis for stating that his approach is scientific rests on his years of N equals 1 experience in psychoanalysis. He speaks as if his cumulative experience in the therapy room constitutes evidence for his theories, throwing out the possibility of his own confirmation bias and subjectivity. That is to say, his theories have not been tested by randomized and controlled studies in a research laboratory to confirm his hypotheses. That being said, one cannot be unimpressed with Freud's cocksuredness as displayed in Totem and Taboo. There's no doubt that Freud spent a lot of time thinking about thinking, and he holds himself and others to ruthlessly honest self-evaluation. Freud is unafraid to highlight and analyze all of the unseemly elements of the human psyche, the violent, the sexual, and the immature. It is obvious from his writing that he has bravely reckoned with these socially unacceptable impulses in himself, and subsequently can see them with clarity in others. Despite his appeal to dark psychology, Freud's confidence is refreshing. He's pejorative in the way he speaks of individuals who suffer, calling them mentally ill, a phrase I prefer to avoid, and worse yet, referring to them as neurotics. This is the sort of language that is avoided nowadays in the field of mental health. We don't call people schizophrenics or depressives, etc. But Freud's arrogance comes with dogged optimism. Freud is of the opinion, and he was the first one to boldly say so, that by simply talking with an individual, that is by psychotherapy, they can recover from depression, compulsion, anxiety, and obsession. In Totem and Taboo, Freud even cites another author who was, and I quote, a highly intelligent man, a former sufferer from compulsion neurosis, who, after being cured through psychoanalytic treatment, was able to demonstrate his efficiency and good sense. This reminded me of the approach of sats that we discussed in episode two, also a psychoanalysis and a student of Freud, who viewed depression and anxiety as conditions that an individual can overcome as they learn about themselves, reject infantile fantasies, and learn the rules of social game playing. According to Freud, an adamant atheist, Part of the infantile fantasy that contributes to less-than-optimal mental states is religion. Before we move on to the two main themes of the book that I found most insightful, let's address a term that Freud frequently uses, compulsion neurosis. Again, this isn't a term used in the mental health community today. Instead, at least in the U.S., we use the big purple book that I have sitting in front of me on my desk, the DSM, The Bible of Clinical Psychology. It had about hundred diagnoses when it first came out in 1952, grew to 365 in the year 2000, and now sits at around 157 in the most recent fifth edition. I digress. Compulsion neurosis would include any mental disorder with anxiety at its root, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, and any other condition resulting from an insecurity that is projected on self or others by way of maladaptive thoughts and behaviors. What Freud calls compulsion neurosis, though, is not a very nuanced term, and it covers a lot of territory, but it was the focus of his work with psychoanalysis. In Totem and Taboo, Freud identifies two psychological occurrences related to religious thinking that have implications for mental well-being. One, the ambivalence of emotion, and two, the omnipotence of thought. Let's start with chapter two of Totem and Taboo, called Taboo and the Ambivalence of Emotion. By the way, you'll notice that in this episode, I've deliberately skirted the actual topic matter of this small book, that is, the spiritual practices of totemism and taboo prohibitions in primitive cultures. In many places, Freud's discussion feels a bit more like an anthropological study than a psychological one. But briefly, for the sake of understanding the intersection of religion and the ambivalence of human emotion... Totemism was a form of primitive religion that centered spiritual, cultural, and sociological infrastructures around totem animals. Taboo refers to the people, places, and things that these communities considered to be untouchable because they were dangerous, either because they were considered to be associated with wicked spirits, or, in the case of holy people and things, because of their jealous punitive power. Relevant to this discussion is what Freud says about the use of sacred objects and ideas to placate our inherently ambivalent human emotion. He talks about the possible double meaning in the original word for taboo. He says this, and I quote, The double meaning in question belonged to the word taboo from the very beginning, and it serves to designate a definite ambivalence, as well as everything which has come into existence on the basis of this ambivalence taboo is itself an ambivalent word. The taboo prohibition is to be explained as the result of an emotional ambivalence. Freud goes on to explain that the very necessity of a command to abstain from something is evidence of this inherent human emotional ambivalence. He says this, and I quote, if taboo expresses itself mainly in prohibitions, it may well be considered self-evident, that it is based on a positive, desireful impulse. For what nobody desires to do does not have to be forbidden. And certainly, whatever is expressly forbidden must be an object of desire. And if we should apply the same theory to those cases in which we ourselves seem to hear the voice of conscience most clearly, we would arouse the greatest contradiction. For there we would assert with the most utmost certainty that we did not feel the slightest temptation to violate any of these commandments, as for example, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, and that we felt nothing but repugnance at the idea, What Freud is saying here is that behind every prohibition is a desire, or else, why would there need to be the prohibition in the first place? If nobody was ever motivated to do this deed, why would a prohibition against it need to exist? Freud then goes on to talk about what he has learned from performing psychoanalysis, and I quote, If we take into account the following results of psychoanalysis, our understanding of the problem is greatly advanced. The analysis of dreams of normal individuals has shown that our temptation to kill others is stronger and more frequent than we had suspected, and that it produces psychic effects even where it does not reveal itself to our consciousness. And when we have learned that the obsessive rules of certain neurotics are nothing but measures of self-reassurance and self-punishment erected against the reinforced impulse to commit murder, we can return with fresh appreciation to our previous hypothesis that every prohibition must conceal a desire." According to Freud, when faced with ambiguity on how to act because of the ambivalence of emotion, primitive religion provided a set of taboos to help settle the ambivalence, This was then carried forth into monotheistic religion, with its accompanying moral precepts. And even today, when faced with ambivalence and socially unacceptable desires, many individuals revert to a religiously prescribed taboo as a touchpoint to settle their ambivalence. And this is familiar in many religious traditions. In moments of great ambivalence, we're taught to beseech God for an answer. In my religious upbringing, as part of a high-demand religious group, we were provided a database of everything that the organization had ever published. If members ever faced challenging life decisions, we could simply use the search feature to find a number of articles that would show us the appropriate course of action. Very rarely would you not be able to find an article that addressed your circumstances exactly. Freud's discussion also made me think about religious icons in broader religion. For example, why do we hang a cross around our rearview mirror? or place a figure of Ganesha on our dashboard. Well, it could be for several reasons. Perhaps it's pure superstition to avoid a car crash. It could be tribalism to let other people know where you stand on matters of religion. Or it could be an outward display of piety to signal to others that you're a good person. But for many, it no doubt serves as a reminder when faced with moments of emotional ambivalence. When we are, to use a religious expression, tempted or faced with indecision, We look to our totem, settle the ambiguity, the icon reminds us of the taboos associated with the religious tradition, and we know what to do. Ford goes on to talk about how this style of thinking can result in anxiety if a taboo is transgressed, and I quote, It is therefore probable that conscience also originates on the basis of an ambivalent feeling from quite definite human relations which contain this ambivalence. One component of the two contrasting feelings is unconscious, and is kept repressed by the compulsive domination of the other component. The character of compulsion neurotics shows a predominant trait of painful conscientiousness, which is a symptom of reaction against the temptation which lurks in the unconscious, and which develops into the highest degrees of guilty consciences as their illness grows worse. End quote. So when someone represses their unconscious desire to violate a taboo, they experience a high degree of guilty conscience, and anxiety that, left unchecked, can lead to any one of the conditions that could be called what Freud refers to as compulsion neurosis. This leads us to the second main point, the omnipotence of thought, a phrase that Freud admits to taking from another author. He says this on page 72, and I quote, The existence of omnipotence of thought is most clearly seen in compulsion neurosis. In every one of the neuroses, it is not the reality of the experience, but the reality of the thought, which forms the basis for the symptom formation. Neurotics live in a special world in which, as I have elsewhere expressed it, only the neurotic standard of currency counts. That is to say, only things intensively thought of or effectively conceived are effective with them. Regardless of whether these things are in harmony with outer reality, a compulsion neurotic may be oppressed by a sense of guilt which is appropriate to a wholesale murderer, while at the same time he acts towards his fellow beings in a most considerate and scrupulous manner, a behavior which he evinced since childhood. And yet his sense of guilt is justified. It is based upon intensive and frequent death wishes which unconsciously manifest themselves towards his fellow beings. It is motivated from the point of view of unconscious thoughts, not of intentional acts. Thus, the omnipotence of thought, the overestimation of psychic processes as opposed to reality, proves to be of unlimited effect in the neurotic's effective life and in all that emanates from it. No doubt, Freud's language here is condescending. He goes on in the same paragraph to compare compulsion neurotics to the savages of primitive cultures. But he does touch on a reality for many religionists, and that is that they feel intense anxiety and guilt over transgressions that never manifest in reality. In another place in the book, Freud says this, and I quote, When we examine these neurotics for the deeds which have called forth such reactions, we're disappointed. We do not find deeds, but only impulses and feelings which sought evil, but which were restrained from carrying it out. "...only psychic realities, and not actual ones, are the basis of the neurotic's sense of guilt. It is characteristic of the neurosis to put a psychic reality above an actual one and to react as seriously to thoughts as the normal person reacts only toward realities." End quote. This very real predicament, which is often enmeshed in a religious worldview, can most certainly make its way to a therapist's office. is talking about here is what is referred to by the APA as scrupulosity, which they define as overconscientiousness with respect to matters of right and wrong, often manifested as an obsession with moral or religious issues, that results in compulsive moral or religious observance, and that is highly distressing. Scrupulosity is a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder, Classically, when we think of OCD, we think of an individual that is so terrified of being dirty that they compulsively wash their hands over and over again. With scrupulosity, um, the compulsive action is a religious one, perhaps some rite or ritual that is performed in a compulsive manner every time a thought enters consciousness that transgresses the taboo of the religion. But as Freud highlights in his theory of the omnipotence of thought, this scrupulosity can manifest itself even without observable behaviors, which I think is something missing from that APA definition. Freud's comments about the omnipotence of thought speak directly to my experience with mental illness coming out of a high-demand religious group. Passages from the Holy Scriptures codify the omnipotence of thought. For example, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 from the New World Translation, you heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you must not murder. However, I say to you that everyone who continues wrathful with his brother will be accountable to the court of justice. And again, you heard that it was said, you must not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who keeps on looking at a woman so as to have a passion for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then there's 2 Corinthians 10:5 with the injunction to bring every thought into captivity to make it obedient to the Christ. Again, these verses bring the thought to the level of the action. They vilify the mind for socially repressed desires, and create a world wherein an individual is constantly monitored by God, not for behaviors, but for thoughts. In my religious upbringing, we were taught that God examines not only the mind, but the very kidneys, the seat of all motivation. While in the APA's definition of scrupulosity, the placation of this fear of being judged by God for unwanted thoughts is done with actions, for some, this compulsive placating takes place only in the mind. For example, in my religious upbringing, we were often taught the story of Nehemiah, who, when confronted by the king of Persia, prayed immediately to his God. There was no necessary convention or posture for this prayer, but an immediate prayer can be offered in any time of temptation to offend God. This is the kind of compulsive thinking that I talk about in my book, one that befell me and led me to mental health crisis. It went something like this. First an unwanted thought would appear in consciousness, perhaps one of repressed doubt. This would be followed by an earnest prayer for forgiveness and strength, followed by the appearance of the apostate thought again, which would bring guilt over being faithless leading to another compulsive and desperate prayer for more faith. This cycle of compulsive thought would continue relentlessly, leaving very little room for any other constructive or creative problem-solving, and eventually leading me directly to the door of the psychiatrist's office. Only after learning about mindfulness, after months of psychotherapy, and after eventually rejecting my fantastical religious worldview, was I able to release myself from this compulsion neurosis. I recognize that the severity of my symptoms may be rooted in a biological predilection to a particular way of thinking. That is to say, we all find ourselves at a different place on the scale of that personality dimension that we call neuroticism. But I think that this omnipotence of thought and the favoring of a hoped-for narrative over testable reality is what causes many non-believers to criticize religion. The intertwining of taboo prohibitions with the motivating power of hope is an unfortunate side effect of many Western religions, a side effect that may result in negative clinical outcomes. God, Lord, the I appreciate all the love I've been getting recently on Instagram and Twitter, so thank you for that. If you enjoyed the show today, please click that like button, hit those five stars, and also share this episode with a friend. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time on Provisional Aspirations.